Hi, before you start listening to this podcast, I need to tell you that the views, thoughts and opinions expressed belong solely to the contributors and not to any other organisation, committee, group or individual. We cannot verify the accuracy of the information contained in this podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to entertain, educate and promote discussion. Unless otherwise stated, we have not consulted medical professionals or other professional services. If you or anyone you know is affected by breast cancer or any other medical condition, please consult your doctor. Whether you agree or disagree with our discussion points, we would love to hear from you. Please keep your correspondence polite and respectful. You can contact us on chemoconvo at yahoo.com. We'd love to hear from you. Hope you enjoy the series. Hello, you are about to listen to episode four of Conversations During Chemo. I really hope you enjoy it. And as per usual, I will give you a little update on what's going on with chemo before we get into the episode. So probably you'll notice as you listen that this episode was not actually recorded technically during chemo. We've got a bit out of sync. But for the purposes of the kind of introductions that I've been doing with chemo updates, I'm going to give you an update of what was happening after chemo four before we listen. So you might remember that things were really, really bloody awful after chemo three and that my oncologist decided that we would change the regime and we would move to a completely different drug and a lower dose once a week with the third week off. And so, yeah, chemo 4 was the first attempt at this and it was just totally different. I mean, it still wasn't fun, but I think, I mean, there's a lot of things that changed. And I think in my mind now, chemo is really split into two things. The first three awful sessions, which happened at the public hospital, which was by no means a horrible place, but it was tired and it was dark and it was dull, there was no natural light and it smelt a bit and the nurses were overworked and you were kind of a bit cramped in and and then you know that would have all been okay but of course my associations are are feeling just so so awful after that medicine was pumped into my veins and there's some other kind of connections with that hospital which are um, quite negative which I'll maybe talk about in another episode um, but for so a number of reasons, that was a really horrible first three sessions. So chemo four, not only was it a new regime, which was so much kinder to my body, but it was also in a new clinic. So my oncologist moved to start his own oncology unit in um, a new clinic. And I will admit, I mean, it's just super nice. Um, I mean, I, I know that I'm so lucky. I know I'm really lucky to have Swiss healthcare. Um but, you know, I'm not going to apologise for that. I think maybe a little bit coming from the UK, I, we have this attitude that you know medical procedures and treatment should not be pleasant in any way, shape or form. Um, and this new clinic I'm at, the philosophy seems to be, let's make it as pleasant as we possibly can. And I am here for that. I really am. So other than uh, there was tiredness and I didn't feel wonderful. I was in bed for two days. Um, after the the first treatment. Um, but then I was really, really quickly back on my feet. There was hardly any nausea. 
it was just tiredness and kind of aching. And then the following week, I went for the second round, which was even a bit easier, to be honest. And I, I just, I mean, obviously, I'm recording this after the event, but I remember after chemo four thinking, okay, I can do this. And so it continued um, on that on that new regime, as you'll figure out when you listen to episodes five and six. I did actually record the intros to those at the correct time. This is the only one that I got a bit confused on. So yeah, that's that's where things were with chemo four. And as you listen to the episode, you'll 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 realise that it's recorded after chemo because I make a couple of references to that. So if you're wondering what's going on with the timeline, it all got a bit messed up. Um, so I really hope you enjoy it. Feedback always welcome. Share, tell everyone. And if you have any advice for me, which you'll you'll know why I'm asking that when you when you get to the end of the episode, do feel free to get in touch. Lots of love. Hi everyone, welcome to episode four of Conversations During Chemo. And I'm delighted to welcome my good friend Sarah to the podcast. Hi Sarah. Hello Liz. I'm sitting here with my non-alcoholic beer. <laughs> and I decided I don't like beer enough to drink the non-alcoholic version. So no alcoholic drinks. Tonight. Tonight. But interestingly, a podcast about alcohol. Right. Not accompanied by alcoholic drinks. So Sarah is my good friend and is forever in my phone labelled Sarah Neighbour, <laughs> even though we haven't been neighbours for a long time, maybe 10 years, but she'll always be Sarah Neighbour to me. <laughs> and she's very kindly agreed to come and chat with me about alcohol. And so we're just going to see where the conversation goes and talk a little bit about our relationships with alcohol how they might have changed over the years and where we are with our drinking now we're in our 40s. Um, we're happy with our drinking habits. How do they compare with other people? Is there anything we want to change? Are we alcoholics? Mm. It's a question I have asked myself genuinely. I have asked myself the same question. Okay, well, I'm interested to get into that yeah. because, yeah, well, let, let's, let's, let's follow the structure a little bit, but I'm really interested to um, explore those questions. A little bit. So I'm going to start by asking Sarah something that I, wa I wanted to do my usual thing of going around and asking lots of people their reaction to this question, but I haven't got around to it. So I'm going to admit that I, before um, breast cancer, before treatment, I drank wine pretty much every day. Um, so I'm kind of going to look at alcohol through two different lenses, the kind of pre-breast cancer lens, because this was a subject I really wanted to talk about even before my diagnosis, but obviously it's got a new kind of angle now that I know that there's an alcohol breast cancer relationship. But I'm going to start by admitting that I used to drink wine um, every day. And I would say on average, it would be, I've written it down, two, so about two 125 mil. And the reason I know that is because, you know, the bottles of wine you get on planes, yeah. they're 250 mil. And I sometimes buy those bottles and just allow myself to drink just that at home. Portion control. Portion control. <laughs> and that's about my... I kind of kind of naturally feel like stopping after... Not always, Sarah, mm -hmm. as you know. Mm -hmm. But on a kind of average night when I'm cooking the kids' dinner, it tends to be about two 125ml glasses of wine every night, let's just say. How... Does that sound shocking to you? Not shocking at all. I would say for the past probably 10 years, mine has been about the same, if not a bit more. 
Okay. So, I mean, I guess looking back at my relationship with alcohol, you know, I started drinking fairly young, I suppose, mm -hmm. in, in high school um, in the United States where it's not legal until you're 21, which it's is... 21, isn't it? Which is quite outrageous. You can go to war, but you can't oh have a beer. That's odd. I had forgotten that. I did know that, but yeah. kind of forgotten. Um, so, you know, that, and that was part of the thrill of it, of course, because it was illicit, um, and mm -hmm. fun. It was good fun. Um, the, the releasing of inhibitions, particularly when you're young, um, was liberating and, and you it, enjoyed was, it. it was good fun. Yeah. I mean, I have so many stories that are hilarious because we got drunk. Um, and I would say that that was that was the pattern when I was young, where it would be what you would, I guess, call binge drinking. Right? Did you used to feel terrible the next day? No. Sometimes, yes, but it always seemed worth it. And okay. I was probably more resilient and bounced back um, yeah. easier when I was younger. And then, you know, as I got older into my 30s, then, you know, I just quite enjoyed a glass of wine. Started, mm -hmm. you know, chills you out. I mm -hmm. happen to think it goes very well with food. And mm -hmm. then I'll confess, you know, moving over here from the US to... To Europe, it started to feel like just the done thing. I mean, you have wine with dinner, it does don't you? Feel, yeah. Right? Um, so I didn't challenge myself so much for a while, but then I think you and I kind of came to similar positions where, I mean, personally, I started to wonder if my default was just because that's the done thing, or mm. was I a bit dependent it, yeah. on it? Was I able to just stop and not think twice about that so that's that's where I got to maybe about a year ago and okay. I have to say you know I think you'll be talking a little bit about some of the stats from Andrew Huberman's yes. podcast I, I will say my friend I saw it pop up you know I listened to his yeah. podcast and I intentionally did not listen to that episode for quite some time because I didn't want to hear what he was likely to say so anyone listening who might not be aware um Andrew Huberman does a great podcast series he's a professor of neurobiology at Stanford School of Medicine and he's a very straight talking guy isn't he yeah he says it how it is with I was going to say no judgment. I think there is a no... Yeah. I feel like I'm being judged by the guy because I know he's teetotal. I think I'm... I think we feel judged because he's telling us the truth about something yeah. we'd rather not know. We don't want to know. Yeah, so one of his episodes was what alcohol does to your body, I think is what it's called. And it's exactly. just basically straightforward scientific facts, which do make for some kind of scary listening if you're a drinker of any amount Right, I because think. he calls some he calls chronic drinking someone who has drinks like us, yeah. one to two glasses yeah. of, of wine a night, and that has real dem demonstrable effects on your well being. Yeah, and it was yeah, like you say, I think he was very clear that like we we are classified in that chronic yeah. drinking category, and that in itself was a bit uncomfortable. But I did already kind of know that. But yeah, we'll go back to some of the things that Huberman, Huberman said and, and some of the pieces of research on the effects of alcohol on the body and mind um, a little later on. But um, I just wanted to say, I always, when I met you, um, your husband, I always thought you were very sophisticated drinkers because you know lots of stuff about wine and you kind of introduced me and my husband to kind of wine tasting mm. and, you know, we, we spent lovely days on vineyards um, and it all seems very civilized when you're not like getting educated about the grape and where it comes from and what it pairs well with 
And we were, like, when we met, we were, we'd all basically said goodbye to our binge drinking days, mm-hmm. I think. So we've always known each other as kind of friends who drink wine together right. and not friends that go out clubbing and doing shots. And But that is also part of my past, mm-hmm. very, very much. And, like, as listeners know, we live in Switzerland where there is a completely different drinking culture to the UK and the US. Mm-hmm. And it's very accepted to drink. But I think in kind of small amounts and it's, and not get drunk is the, the way drinking happens here. Like It's not charming. It's not funny. Particular. No. Um, yeah, it, it is a very, it has a, it's meant to be sophisticated or part of the culture. Yeah. Not to be rowdy. Exactly. And I think also it's just because it's just part of the culture, it's not, it doesn't kind of hold all this kind of like, promise and and like I don't know like when you're going out in the UK probably the same in the US you know is you start to think about what you're going to drink and how much you're going to drink and what might happen and where the night might go but that's not how drinking I don't think happens here it's just there is something that happens amongst lots of other things like yeah. a nice meal and a market or a hike or whatever and the end result is not to the aim is not to get absolutely wasted. Right. <laughs> Which was my aim at some point. And, oh, totally. And it, was, and it was really fun. <laughs> and, you know, I would totally agree with you on that. I was thinking about this when I was researching this podcast. I There are certain things I regret. But on the whole, I do not regret those, like, euphoric moments on the dance floor with my mates or the, the fun conversations over a cigarette outside when you've had too much to drink or the silly things, the joke, all of that. I don't regret it either. No, the chaos that ensued was part of the point. I mean, we, I mean, I had some friends that would say, do you want to go blackout tonight? Really? <laughs> that was, the, that was literally the aim. And when you're young, it is quite exciting though, it isn't was, it? It was. I mean, that was never my objective, but that was kind of the joke because there was a bar that served ex pitchers for 10 cents and you know they called it blackout tuesday and so oh my gosh <laughs> but, but don't you think the analyzing the next day was also part of it hilarious. like the remembering the jokes and the silly and things you said this the, yeah. and oh my gosh they fell down yeah and yeah like we are obviously of the binge drink drinking generation mm. and i think alcohol has just been part of our lives and so many people around me for our whole lives it, it's just it was only actually quite recently probably as recently as maybe five or six years ago, that I've really taken a step back and thought, hang on, this is this is a poisonous substance. It's right. ethanol. Is it ethanol? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. I think that's the only one that you can actually process, but is still a toxin. It's a toxin. Right. It's, it's poisonous. Yeah. Is it... How, how weird mm. that we think, you know, it's, it's almost more acceptable to drink than not drink. Like, if someone's not drinking, you wonder what's, what's going on with them. Like, do they... Do they have a health issue or are they just really boring? <laughs> Absolutely. And, I, you know, I, I had some sympathy for, for my mother who was first both a drinker and a smoker and mm-hmm. she was an alcoholic and got sober when I was quite young but continued smoking and the society really turned against smokers. Oh my gosh, I can't believe you put that in your body. Yeah. But no one has done the same thing with alcohol. It's it's absolutely embraced and encouraged and it's intricately woven into everything that we do in society. So I had some sympathy with that, even though I detested smoking. It, you know, it 
she had a point. And it's funny, isn't it? Because the, the movement to, um, you know, the kind of public health campaigns in, I guess, I, can't, I don't know exactly what, how it happened in the US, but in the UK, I remember when smoking was banned in public places and, and that's generally lauded as a hugely successful public health campaign um, and now to the point like you say where you know someone you, you can't believe we used to go into bars that were oh, filled with smoke right um but pre- presumably whatever motivation there was to get people not to smoke doesn't exist for the drinking because of the industry I don't know yeah I don't know society just hasn't got there I mean to the point where you know you have some you know do good organizations like the one I work for that will have a blacklist for tobacco weapons, mm-hmm. oil and gas, mm-hmm. but uh, the alcoholic beverage companies no. are welcome. Um, so yeah, it's 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 pretty curious to be honest. It is interesting. It yeah. is yeah. Maybe that's a one to park for yeah. another episode. But like, definitely interesting to consider. So what um, would you agree with me that? You you are not shocked by admission my my admission that I drink two glasses of wine a day and in fact you probably drink about the same yep. or drank maybe we'll talk about that in a moment whether we've changed our drinking habits but there will be listeners who are shocked by that mm. and I'm I'm not at all you know I'm someone that's very open and I'm 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 not embarrassed or ashamed to admit that I do drink or did drink that and sometimes when I tell people they are horrified yep. Because, some, you know, I think for some people that, that really does constitute a drinking problem. Um, so I wanted to know whether it's kind of technically considered a drinking problem. So I plugged my consumption. Let me just get my notes. I plugged my consumption into two um, pieces, two websites that to assess your, your drinking habits. So the first one, the acronym is AUDIT, A-U-D-I-T. And I've forgotten. Oh, let me just get my computer open. Um, I've forgotten what that acronym stands for, actually. Bear with me, listeners. Alcohol self-test audit. Alcohol use disorders identification test. So I put my two times 125 mil and it asked me a load of other questions as well. And it came out with low score. Your score is six and places you in the low risk category for alcohol problems. Yay. It goes on to congratulate me. <laughs> so I'm feeling quite good about that. Right. But then I, I um, used a second tool drinkaware.co.uk and this is what I got Sarah increasing risk your drinking is dangerous to your health increasing your risk of serious health problems including seven types of cancer liver and heart disease and high blood pressure unless you cut down you are at risk of damaging your health ouch so two completely different answers so it did nothing to um clear clear up that conundrum for me at all um but I probably don't need a website to tell me because I will admit that I have yeah I'm not entirely comfortable or I certainly wasn't entirely comfortable with my relationship with alcohol um, which is similar to yours the binge drinking long gone right apart from my 40th birthday which we all famously remember (laughs) (laughs) tequila came out it was a Freddie Mercury theme party (laughs) what was what was I supposed to do but on the whole, um, it really is just two, sometimes three, and the occasional event, four glasses of wine. And then I have this really good stopping signal, which I think you have as well. Yeah. The boys, maybe not so much. Um, not as much. But, you know, we tend to just kind of know, and we're both quite early bedders, I think. Yeah. So we kind of just enjoy our wine, eat, and then that's it. I rarely feel, if ever, feel affected by it the next day. I very rarely never do anything silly. Those days are gone. I just seem to enjoy my wine 
go to bed, feel fine the next day. However, Sarah, I cannot, or yeah, I'm going to use the present tense. I cannot not have those two glasses of wine. Yeah, I think that was the realization I got to as well. I just, the default was come home, start cooking dinner, Mm -hmm. pour myself a glass of white wine, Mm -hmm. and then depending on what dinner would be, I might move to another glass of white or to red, Mm -hmm. Um, and it would probably stop there, but maybe there was a little bit, you know, that third or fourth, Mm -hmm. um, if it was a Thursday or Friday. Mm -hmm. Um, And to be honest, I'm with you. I didn't wake up feeling bad. It probably affected my sleep, though I have to say maybe jumping ahead to where I am in the past year or probably more recent than that, which is a an attempt to at least a few days a week just not have those few glasses. Right. But I have to say, I don't wake up feeling measurably better. Okay, that's interesting. Do you? Well, I, I, I don't really know because the, the honest answer ah. is, is that I had not managed to achieve alcohol-free nights so you, I mean, you said you've, you've kind of gone for two nights a week or maybe three. Two to three. Where you don't drink. Um, um, I said before we started recording, I really want to know the answer to this question. You know, how easy is that for you? And I'll just jump in and, and say that for me, it, I, I can't do it. I, the thing that made me stop drinking for any period of time was bloody chemotherapy. So what, I mean, if it takes chemotherapy... <laughs> I don't think you know, that's sustainable. Exactly, I don't think that's sustainable. <laughs> I don't think that's quite correct. Um, and just also to let you know that I downloaded an, a hypnotherapy app to help me not have those... Because my trigger is about the same as you, like cooking dinner. But my main trigger is that tends to be the point of day when the kids are driving me crazy. And, oh my God, that sweet relief, that moment for me in the kitchen with my glass of wine. I tell the kids to go off and do something. You know, I think that's just such sweet relief for me. And I knew that I had to try and get over that hump, that trigger point. So I tried the hypnotherapy app with some success. I'm definitely not physically dependent on wine. And I have absolutely no withdrawal symptoms and no physical problem not drinking. But the mental association of relief and relaxation was obviously more, more overpowering than my willpower. And then I even downloaded an app called I Am Sober, um, where you're supposed to track your alcohol-free days and the app gives you lots of positive reinforcement. And again, I just... I find that's like tickling myself. Yeah. It doesn't really work. The the, the pre-programmed congratulations aren't going to work for me. No, exactly. I'm... I, I, yeah, it didn't work for me either. And so, yeah, I was drinking every night and not wanting to drink every night. And that's where I got to where I was a bit freaked out. Yeah, I, so my moment where I realized I probably needed to listen to the, that Huberman podcast that I'd been putting off was when I was at my cousin's house, actually when my mom was ill, and they just didn't have wine because they didn't have wine. And I'm yeah. thinking, but well, why don't you have wine? <laughs> There's an option of having wine. So we, you know, how my husband and I are, we're always off in the mountains here and there in Switzerland there's always wine in every high mountain refuge you can find but yeah. you know we've been in sub-saharan Africa we've been in North Africa the Middle East where alcohol is not easy to come by yeah. and it doesn't bother me you yeah. know I can get through those evenings and enjoy it and, yeah. and, and embrace it um, but in a scenario where the obvious thing was to have a glass of wine not having it there was I found myself 
being annoyed. Twi- were you a bit twitchy? I like, was annoyed yeah. at them. I was kind of um, feeling like I had to address that. that I mean, that. I guess that was also a particularly stressful situation. I mean, whenever life throws anything at me, um, and my husband's the same, we, we turn to wine. Right. Um, That's fair. I I can give myself that uh, that pass. But, but you can always find a pass, I think. That's true as well. So... So then, yeah, it was a journey of further procrastination, but then finally listening and then just trying, just seeing if I could do it. I just had to see if I could do it, which is, seems an alarming reflection or question to ask, but, but if that's, that's where I was. Well, if that's our conclusion, then we know yeah. we, we, the whole point of this is to be honest, yeah. you know, if we need to face something, like there is a bit of an alcohol problem, then that's my whole point of doing this. I want to face it. Yeah. And so I find, so how do I react? But I find once I make the decision, once I say no to the first glass, Mm -hmm. because my husband will often just be drinking like we always did. Yeah. You know, he hasn't made that decision to change. And that's totally fine. So I still see it there. And so I could keep asking myself, okay, do I want to change my mind? Mm -hmm. Do I want to have that glass? And I find I don't really do that too much. So that is somewhat reassuring that it's not mm. that I'm going through the whole evening like, oh, now should I, oh, I'm going to okay. change my mind. I'm so it's change the initial decision. It's the initial decision, but I still have to make that initial decision mm-hmm. each time. It's not default. Like, well, of course I'm not going to have that glass of wine because yeah. it's Monday or it's Tuesday. Or and can you talk yourself out of it quite easily? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yes. <laughs> Okay. okay. Well, uh, maybe it's a it's not an accident that I chose Sundays where often we're out hiking and we have lunch yeah. and I'm going to have a glass of wine with lunch when I'm in this beautiful setting looking at the mountains and so I've already cheated on Sunday then maybe I should just go ahead and have a glass so when still, I get home. Yeah. yeah. So it's still there's still a, yeah. a complex relationship there. It's it's not as if I don't think about it. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, and the thing is I'm as I said earlier, you know, the thing the thing that stopped me drinking, I mean, it's not true to say that I never had the night off and it's uh, similar to you. Um, I definitely wasn't physically um, addicted to alcohol. If I went to a country where there was no alcohol available or an evening when there was no alcohol available, I'd be physically fine. Mm. I'd probably crave a drink, but I, I wouldn't like start shaking or withdrawing or anything. But yeah, I could always, and I think since COVID as well, I'm not making excuses, but that lockdown was really cemented my five o'clock wine habit. And... Yeah, the longest I've gone without wine since, um, probably since the birth of my second child is the the last six months when I haven't drank very much at all for long periods because I've been in, in breast cancer treatment. And it just changes your whole taste and what you want, thank goodness. Um, like the last thing you want when you're having chemotherapy is wine. So then obviously when I'm going through chemo, I'm thinking, I've broken it, I've snapped it, I've done it. I'm never going to go back. To that person that drinks every night but listeners my friend Sarah <laughs> I'm um how far am I out of chemo now I think I'm two or three weeks since last chemo and as soon as those drugs were out of my body and I went back to normal I just wanted I just wanted to be me again and being me is you know one of my pleasures in life is my cold glass of white wine in the summer or my lovely warming glass of red wine in the winter um, so here I am now, I think three weeks post chemo, and I've had a drink every day since chemo until today. Um, and there's been, an, you know, I've been on holiday and then I was at a wedding and then I was at my parents, which always makes me want to drink. <laughs> but um, again, there's always a reason, there's isn't al- there? There's always a reason. Yeah. And now, 
And I, I but, but I kind of known in this last three weeks, and I, I'm not, I, I don't know for sure, but I really want to make a change now. Um, and I kind of knew that I was having my final fling with just going for it. I mean, when I say going for it, I'm still only having two or three glasses a day. Mm. I'm not, even, even at the wedding I've just been to, I'm really, like, I don't drink more than that. But having those drinks, I can't quite kick it. But of course now, here I am, I've started radiotherapy today. Um, I've recently been diagnosed with an underlying heart condition and I'm recovering from breast cancer. It seems like a timely moment to consider the links, mm. undeniable links between alcohol and, I mean, the, the heart condition wasn't caused by alcohol, but there's really kind of strong, strong links and strong evidence. I mean, I've got... Um, I've got quotes that I could kind of spout at you, but I won't bother. I mean, anyone can go and Google breast cancer alcohol links and they're all there. Yeah, I mean, I was reflecting on a conversation I had with um, a friend of mine whose husband is a an oncologist and, you know, he loves beers and we've always drunk together. And, you know, he said, yeah, there's a link between alcohol and cancer. And yet he's drinking. Yeah. And I'm drinking. Yeah. And I'm drinking. (laughs) And you're drinking. And still, I will say to you, I have no intention of giving up alcohol. Yeah. Um, I I really don't. But I do have an intention of of reducing the amount I drink. And I think if it's not now, then when the hell is it? Well, that was one of the lessons I took away from the Huberman podcast. And sorry, listeners, for those of you who haven't heard it, but you have an opportunity to, to tune in. It is that... You know, because partially I started wondering, well, if I don't go down to how much he drinks, which is one glass of wine, like, a month or mm-hmm. every now and again, which I don't see myself going to that level, mm-hmm. then why bother? And I should just drink whatever mm-hmm. I want. But it does seem to be almost a linear correlation. Mm-hmm. Reducing does have positive benefits. Exactly. So, if, I mean, I, I listened to um, um, another expert talking about the fact, you know, if you're drinking two bottles of wine a day and you reduce to one, which is still way too much, but you're still doing your body a huge favour. Right. So if you're drinking, you know, two glasses every night of the week and you reduce that down to four nights of the week... It's something. You're clearly doing your body a favour. And, um, you know, I need to kind of decide exactly where I'm going to go. But what I do know for sure is that I'm not one of those all-or-nothing people. And that's where I found there was a grey area. And that's where I found that I couldn't find anyone that I kind of related to which is why I really want to discuss it with you because I knew you were quite similar to me so all the books about alcohol this naked mind and then I mean, there's a ton of books and then I say all the vast majority are written by people who had really quite an obvious alcohol problem you know blackouts falling over hurting themselves hiding bottles all that kind of classic stereotypical alcoholic behavior and then they'd seen the light and gone completely teetotal. And then they write a book about it. And, whenever, and I read a few of these books and I just didn't relate. Because I just thought, I never, I've never drunk in that way that you describe. I've never hidden wine bottles. I've never, you know, apart from the binge drinking years, the partying years. But in recent years, I don't kind of, it, it doesn't seem to cause me any dangerous behaviour or anything like that. So I just couldn't relate to them. And then also in my circle of friends, I know quite a lot of people that have gone from drinking loads to absolutely nothing, you know, and there's this kind of sober movement. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I've never, I've, I've never wanted to be teetotal. And I think you've got to want something to even have a hope of achieving it. 
so for me, it's not a re- it's not a realistic goal to completely give up. Right. You have to want it, or you have to effectively have no choice, which is what came down to it for a lot of people in my family. Which, well, as yeah. you know, there's a lot of alcoholism in my family, and so that was why I asked myself, I you know, early on, in, especially in those years when I was doing the binge type of yeah. drinking. You know, I had to kind of watch myself. Am I on this path that I'd seen quite a few family members go down when there, it has to be all or nothing? Yeah. I, I don't know if it's an addictive gene or what it is exactly, but it's clear that their relationship with alcohol is very different from mine. Yeah. And they needed to stop. And for that reason, I'm really glad that there's this sober movement because it's not so weird anymore as it was. No, and it shouldn't be. Correct. Right? I mean, it's, it's yeah, we're, in a way, we're the ones with the problem. <laughs> exactly. You know, if we think it's weird not to drink. <laughs> exactly. So I'm really happy to see that. And in some circles, it's actually the cool thing, which is great. But yeah, I'm in that um, that fuzzy... I don't know if it's a no man's land or if it's just a, it's part of my life. Because if you were to ask one of your family members who has become sober because they had a serious problem with alcohol, if they thought you had an alcohol problem. Absolutely not. They would say no. Absolutely not. Yeah. Even my mother who wanted everyone to be an alcoholic, (laughs) she would always say she was saving someone a chair at the the AA meeting. Um, Because she, hey, she found a lot of fellowship and and frankly spirituality in that yeah and and that's one thing that I think I've mentioned to you before where I think I was quite lucky early on to be exposed to Alcoholics Anonymous because the 12-step program is a very practical and healthy Mm -hmm. way to live your life to be aware of like when you're you know have a resentment or when you're feeling guilt or shame when Mm -hmm. you're afraid and to take steps to remediate that, to be useful, all sorts of, you know, inventory and gratitude lists and all of these things, which are very practical, mm-hmm. healthy ways to live. But certainly none of none of the alcoholics in my family would look at me and, and think they were saving me a chair. So, well, which is interesting, because therefore I wonder whether we do kind of slip into this kind of grey area as well. I mean, and I think the results that I spoke about earlier, the two websites that one said that I have a problem and one said that I didn't kind of demonstrate that, that... Yeah, it's it's maybe we're not alcoholics, but we have a we're like a Bud Light. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, alcoholics light. Is that what we are? Yeah, let's say we should find a we should patent a a terminology for our um, enthusiastic but not obsessive drinking. Yeah, maybe. Or is it obsessive? I guess I don't know. It's it's habitual. Yes. But I do still take joy in it. It's not that I'm, I, this is another reflection that I think was important to acknowledge. Which I, I'm not, I might seek to relax, but I'm not seeking to dull yeah. or cover anything. No, I mean, neither, I don't think. Yeah. And I think, again, that, that kind of eliminates us from the kind of classic kind of therapies that help people stop drinking, because we're not drinking for, I don't think I'm drinking to disguise a hole. Right. Or, I mean, sure, it's, it's it's to kind of it's a stress relief for me after a hard day parenting. But even if I've had a really really relaxing nice day, I would still really look forward to a cold glass of white wine because it's the it's the pleasure of the drink. I mean, you know, some people alcoholics actually don't actually like the taste of alcohol. They try and disguise it with mixers. Okay. They, they don't like the taste of the drink. They they just want the feeling. Yeah. Whereas for me, that definitely isn't the case. I. I mean, I've come to think of it as kind of the bookend of the coffee in the morning, which I also just love the ritual of. I love 
the aroma. I love, yeah, sure. Also the kind of lift and focus it gives me. And then I, then, you know, you. I, I was thinking that earlier, actually. It's a ritual. Yeah. Isn't it? And I, I also struggle to, um, to, to not drink coffee. And sometimes it gives me too much of a buzz. And I think, oh, maybe I should drink something else ex- apart from coffee in the morning. But I have the same emotional connection mm. with coffee that I do with wine in the evening. But we cannot dispute that, as we said earlier, it, it's not good for our bodies in any, in any amount. Even the red wine lobby cannot... Oh, uh, no. <laughs> so red wine contains reserve toll or something. Whatever. The grapeseed extract that you would literally need to drink like 50 bottles of red wine. <laughs> and to so get... the deleterious effects would more than cancel out exactly. any positive Exactly, benefit. so yeah. that's that's all bullshit. Yeah. Um, but Huberman, I mean, it's pretty scary, but I'll just, you know, I'll just remind you of some of it. You know, people who drink on average one to two drinks a night will have some degeneration of the brain. Alcohol is water and fat soluble, so it doesn't just attach to cells, it actually um, changes them. It produces substantial damage to cells as the body breaks it down it converts it in the liver and it alters gene expression and then we get to the bit that I need to really think about which is depending on which study you read and which evidence you look at for there's a four to thirteen percent increase for every 10 grams of alcohol consumed per day um sorry an increase in your risk for breast cancer so 10 grams of alcohol is approximately one glass of 175 mil so less than what I was drinking and not only does alcohol increase your risk for getting cancer it also decreases your natural killer cells so your body's um, way of fighting cancerous cells that may or may not be on the move so I mean there's really nothing good about the link having said that I I don't think that's the same as saying that alcohol cause definitely causes I mean I I can't say that my drinking is what caused my cancer because I mean we can find loads and loads and loads of people who are teetotal vegans um green juicing uh, who who unfortunately get cancer diagnoses so I'll I'll never know and obviously there's tons of other factors you know we live in this horribly polluted planet there's microplastics everywhere you know there's crap in food there's god knows what chemicals and half the stuff we eat um you know, so it could be any one of a number of things. Yep. That, um, we do know that the um, instances of breast cancer in younger women are, are going up and have done a lot since, um, since the millennium. And there's lots of different theories as to why that might be. There's absolutely no denying that if someone wants to decrease their risk of getting cancer or cancer recurring, it would be a very good idea to cut down or eliminate alcohol. So what it, am I going to do? <laughs> it's obviously the smart thing to do, but, you know, we take these calculated risks everywhere, don't we? You know, I I do a lot of things that are really good for my body and mm-hmm. good for my mental health. I you do. You're a such lot. a healthy person. I, you know, eat quite well. I'm careful on my sleep. I try to manage stress and maybe the alcohol plays a little role in that, although there's you know, he mentions the opposite side of that, which is it raises anxiety when you're when you're not drinking. I haven't experienced no, that. No, me neither. Yeah. But I think, is he talking more about anxiety, like hangover? I don't think anxiety. so. I think it's simply kind of the other side of the coin um, when you're outside of the kind of depressive state that alcohol okay. creates. But it it's not causing any recognizable problem mm-hmm. in my life. 
I take a calculated risk when I go skiing. You know, sometimes yeah. I could fall and and injure myself, but the pleasure and the adventure and the workout of that is worth that risk. And for me today, alcohol is still something enjoyable and pleasurable that is worth the risk for me today. I'm looking to reduce it a little bit, just as I'm not as aggressive on skiing as mm -hmm. I was 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's, that's the way so I'm So where, where are you, like, so you said about a year ago, you made the decision to try and drink yes. less. And like, so how, how are you getting on with that? Are you managing about two days a week? Where you don't I think drink? it was about a year ago that I got serious about asking myself the question. Okay. I didn't start actually doing that until about three months ago. Okay. Um, and yeah, so I, I'm about three days a week, not drinking, cheating one of those week, one of those maybe one or two weeks a month. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I'm not. Yeah. So you're, you've not got an ab ab absolute kind no. of target for what you want I to have. I have a concept and I'm kind of monitoring and reflecting, I'm still trying to see whether I am experiencing a noticeable benefit for myself, mm -hmm. which might encourage me to reduce further, which to date I have not. No, I don't think you were drinking enough though to to be having too much of a negative impact. So. That's right, Liz, I wasn't yeah. drinking enough. <laughs> that wasn't an invitation for you to drink more. No, but I mean, like me, the motivation isn't, the, one of the reasons the motivation isn't there is because I do sleep fine. Yeah. I don't have hangovers, yeah. you know, So, it, it, and I, like you, I think we're very similar. I'm also, was, I mean, I'm, ironically, I now know that I wasn't healthy, but, you know, before cancer. I, you were I, feeling great. I was you? feeling great. I was yeah. working out. I eat well. We're both, none of us are overweight. You know, I, I was also managing my stress really well. So it wasn't causing an obvious problem in my life. But now I'm on the other side of breast cancer. I really, and, and, and if I'm being honest, I I was a little bit uncomfortable with the fact that I had this kind of psychological addiction because unlike you, who seems to have quite seamlessly, you say that you you know you make the decision and once you've made that decision, you know you tend to not have a drink that night. I actually haven't been able to do that. Um, I think there was one night last week where I was like, I'm, I'm not having a drink tonight. I'm definitely not having a drink. And then my husband came home from work. And there was a load of stuff going down and the kids were driving me crazy and he poured himself a cold glass of rosé and it, I was just off. I was just like, oh, why would I not? Why would I not? It's a cold glass of rosé. I'm feeling stressed. He's drinking. But that was just another day where I'd said to myself I wasn't going to drink and I did. And again, I know there will be people listening going, oh my God, there, there will be two, there will be really extreme. There'll be people listening going, that girl has not got an alcohol problem. She doesn't even know what an alcohol problem is. There will be listeners going, oh my God, that's serious shit, man. She can't get through a night without wine. And there'll be a, a load of people in the middle who just totally get it. You're welcome. So Yeah, exactly, exactly. But just before we finish, um, I did just also want to say, um, yeah, I think we've got time for um, another couple of minutes. The, the, other, the other thing, and then we touched on it slightly, is that society just has so many... Alcohol is just so tightly woven into our culture, isn't it? And I just, I thought it was quite ironic that my oncologist said to me, um, end of chemo coming up, champagne time. You know, we drink to celebrate, we drink to commiserate, we drink when we're stressed, we drink when we're happy. I mean, I know I'm doing the, the royal we, I'm massively generalising, but as a society, that's what we do. Um, I was actually quite um, interested to, to, kind of, to go back to the UK, and I haven't been back for ages now, 
And it reminded me of the UK drinking culture, which is totally different to the Swiss one. And the fact that, you know, there was, I walked past a brunch place yesterday and it was like brunch with limitless cocktails. And I was just thinking, oh my God, who could drink limitless cocktails with brunch? That just sounds gross to me. And I'd forgotten about the people puking on the streets. And the, I mean, I was in Birmingham on a Saturday night, right? So it was just like, there's girls staggering around in high heels and miniskirts puking in the street and all of that. And like, I guess it kind of circles around to where we started that we don't really have that so much here. No, we don't. And I think I have outgrown it. Not, not that I'm better than that, but I, it's just not part of my life anymore. I don't bounce back, as I said, from hangovers as well. But I, I'll, I'll give you an example. I'm going to see friends um, in about a few weeks who I used to drink heavily with Mm -hmm. and have the funniest, funniest stories that have erupted from just gross overconsumption Mm -hmm. of alcohol. And and I I want to summon up the strength to drink like that with them just a couple couple nights just to get a couple good stories back in because the hilarity inevitably ensues. But it's just... I tried to get myself up for that, and I, I just can't anymore. So It's not worth it. It's no, not it's worth. not. And so I, whereas where part of me would also judge that brunch, and that just sounds like diabetes to me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but I also have a, some kind of, uh, envy is not the right word. But just no, I do know what a, you mean. Yeah. But it's probably a nostalgia for our youth nostalgia, as well, yeah. because I don't... I don't think many people in their 40s and 50s and 60s, or maybe I'm wrong, are going for those right. limitless cocktail brunches. Yeah, there's, it's probably people with a lot, a lot more constitution, drinking constitution than I have these days. But I think I just, I just thought, um, and I wasn't judging, I was just like, wow. Yeah. I, I, would, I just used to, I was surrounded by that because the UK does have a very special um, drinking culture. Um, you know, puking on the street was just completely normal. It was almost odd if you didn't. And, it, you know, it, it it really was something that I just didn't question at all. And I think it's interesting, you know, going back to that culture and kind of seeing it with the eyes of someone that's lived in a European country. I know the UK's, well, it was European when I lived there. Anyway, that's a whole other story. We're not going to do Brexit now. Listeners no, will be tonight. pleased to know. So watch this space. Um... I really, really hope that I do manage to reduce my drinking, and yeah, well, I'll we'll maybe do a follow up where I'll I'll let people know how I'm getting on with that. And if listeners have any tips, oh, that's one more thing I meant to ask you. Sorry, one more question: Do you actually have any tips for those alcohol-free nights apart from apart from getting over that um, original hurdle of making the decision? Do you drink something else instead? Or just really, are you just really bored? Or? <laughs> um, not bored. I have started... I did try one time to have um, those bitters with, um, yeah. with uh, fizzy water. Okay. But it just wasn't the same. No. So I, I have found myself drinking more um, ogazos, so okay. fizzy water, but... That's I think I do that a little bit more when it's hot out and it has been. So I don't know if that's correlated or not. But no, not no, no replacement. Just um... and do you try and do anything like do you try and organize an activity or anything to replace it, or do you just don't not really need to? No, I just don't. You just don't do it. Yeah. 
Okay, interesting. No tips. So maybe it's as simple as that. Just don't do it. <laughs> and the thing is, I know that I can do that right. because I have done it. So maybe I just need to remind myself um, that, that I can do it. And just maybe it's as simple as making the decision and I haven't quite got there yet and you have. It's the yeah. anti-Nike. Just yeah. don't do it. Yeah, just don't do it. Okay, <laughs> on that note, thanks for listening, guys. See you next time. so much for listening if you enjoyed the episode we'd love you to tell all your friends and perhaps you could follow us on instagram and or facebook by searching for us at convos during chemo if you have any feedback for us good or bad we'd also love to hear from you please send us a message or a dm the email address is chemoconvo at yahoo.com you can also contact us on facebook or instagram see you next time 